Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Telephones and telephone bells have always made me uneasy. Years ago, when they were mostly wall fixtures, I disliked them. But nowadays, when they are planted in every nook and corner, they are a downright intrusion. At the office, the sudden ringing of the telephone annoys me. It means that no matter what I'm doing, in spite of the switchboard operator, in spite of my secretary, in spite of doors and walls, some unknown person is coming into the room and onto my desk to talk right into my very ear, confidentially, whether I like it or not. At home, the feeling is still more disagreeable. But the worst is when the telephone rings in the dead of night. If anyone could see me turn on the light and get up blinking to answer it, I suppose I would look like any other sleepy man annoyed at being disturbed. The truth in such a case, however, is that I am struggling against panic, fighting down a feeling that a stranger has broken into the house and is in my bedroom. By the time I manage to grab the receiver, I am outwardly calm. But I only get back to a more normal state when I recognize the voice at the other end. This effort at dominating a purely animal reaction and fear had become so effective that when my sister-in-law called me at two in the morning, asking me to come over but first to warn the police that she had just killed my brother... I quietly asked her how and why she had killed Andre. I'm frightened. I'm so frightened. It's that time of year. October. Here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories, we're transitioning from last month's science fiction into a month of horror stories. And when you want to build that bridge between those two genres, you need to engage the services of a mad scientist. Yeah, and that's exactly what we've done as we get into the spooky scary with The Fly by George Langelon. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here at strangestudies.com and on Patreon. If you're not already a patron, we release six shows a month on all the best classic genre tales. So please subscribe. This is our free show for the month, but we've spared no expense on this month's reader. He's the flyest guy I know, Andrew (laughs) Lehman. Andrew is one of the brains behind the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. As always, I recommend you check out their offerings from rare book replicas to game props to films to radio dramas. We'll link to their site in the show notes. It's basically a transporter device for fun. Mm-hmm. Just like the story we're covering today, The Fly. When I think about The Fly, I think first about the 1950s movie. It's hard not to. Mm-hmm. And the monster in the movie, a regular guy who's got one fly arm and a giant fly head. That is just pure fun. Great. That is humanity at its best. <laughs> In 1958, a bunch of people and institutions all working together made it possible that you could go to a local theater, sit with a bunch of strangers, and watch a woman scream at a guy with a fly head. And then shift to the fly-eyed perspective and see dozens of images of the same woman screaming at him, just like a real giant fly might see it. Mm. Then just finish your popcorn and go home. You can even replay it in your mind the next day while you're at work. A lot goes wrong in civilization, but some things go very right, and The Fly is one of them. (laughs) I was very excited to cover the story and get to the source material for the many films. What do we know about this author, George Langelon? George Langelon was born in Paris, France, not Texas, in 1908. However, he spent most of his life in England. Yeah, this story has a French setting, I believe, although it does feel very English. Mm. The 1950s film wisely split the difference and set the movie in Montreal, Quebec. Very intelligent move there, I thought. Before the war... Langeland was a newspaper writer, but when the war hit, he quickly got snatched up by British intelligence. 
he became a spy. <laughs> Wikipedia says this about his war experience. He was in F section SOE with the rank of lieutenant. And th those were the agents dispatched to France from the British Special Operations Executive. That's what the SOE is. Basically, it's the Espionage Division. His codename was Langdon. According to his memoirs, The Masks of War, he underwent plastic surgery to alter his appearance before being dropped into France. The operation was deemed necessary so as to remove features that were too distinctive. He later explained that his ears were too large and they had to be pinned back before he could be dropped into enemy territory. Wow. He parachuted into occupied France on September 7th, 1941 to make contact with the French resistance forces and was captured on October 6th. He was imprisoned and condemned to death by the Nazis, but he escaped on July 16th, 1942 yes. and returned to England to participate in the Normandy landings. Well, those are pretty impressive achievements. Oh my God, yeah. And one might imagine that the plastic surgery angle could have informed this story. Mm -hmm. Having a change in your own appearance must be pretty destabilizing, even if it's just pinning back the ears, you know? He is also another guy who claimed to be pals with Aleister Crowley. I think he was friends with Aleister Crowley. Uh, he's mentioned in Crowley's biography. Oh, it was the spy work, I think, that's the link. Apparently, mm -hmm. Crowley was spying among the Germans in America at the time, trying to gain their confidence and get intelligence on what was going on in the homeland. And they knew each other through that network. Uh, this is Langelon's most well-known story, though he did yes. publish lots of short stories and a few novels. The Fly was published in the June 1957 issue of Playboy magazine, mm -hmm. like some other stories we've covered on this iteration of the show. So uh, the story came out one year later. It became a movie in 1958. With Vincent Price. <laughs> you are singing a Misfits song called I Return am. of the Fly. Oh, I can't help I it. think about it, too, when I hear the title. But I just rewatched The Fly last night. Oh. The most surprising thing about it is how faithful an adaptation it is to this story, except mm. for a few differences, which are really just more enhancements of the story rather than changes. Yeah. It's pretty much word for word what happens in this thing. It was directed by Kurt Newman, who was a German director, did lots of streamliners which were 45-minute features designed to fill out short double bills. He also did a lot of Tarzan movies, but he's probably best known, aside from this film, for directing Rocket Ship XM in 1950, which is kind of a landmark science fiction movie, set off the sci-fi craze, mm. has a great score. The screenwriter for this movie was James Clavel, or Clavel, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, I should know, but he went on to write hugely successful novels like Taipan and Shogun, oh, wow. which is yeah. probably what we know him for wisely knew not to stray too far from the source material for this film. The film was a big hit and had two sequels, Return of the Fly, with Vincent <laughs> Price here, Return of the Fly, in 1959. And The Curse of the Fly came out in 1965, but with no Vincent Price. And no Misfits song about Curse of the Fly. No. If it did, it might sound like that, with no Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Langeland died in 1972, just shy of his 64th birthday. Ah, boo. Well, left great legacy with this story. Oh, yeah. And don't forget the 1986 Cronenberg film with Jeff Goldblum or mm. its sequel, The Fly 2 with Eric Stoltz. Did you know that half of that movie was shot with Michael J. Fox before it was recast? Is that right? Yes, with Eric Stoltz. I didn't know that. You know, that's funny because I know that Eric Stoltz was originally supposed to be in Back to the Future. Yes. But I really love those 80s versions as well. Oh, and yeah, they're good. Also, Howard Shore of Lord of the Rings fame, music-wise, mm -hmm. wrote an opera in 2008 inspired by the Cronenberg movie. I'd really love to see that. People love fly stuff. <laughs> Let's get into the story. It begins with this guy, Francois, getting a call in the middle of the night from his sister-in-law, Helene. She tells him that she just killed his brother, Andre, 
and wants him to call the police. She's down at the factory, Francois' factory, and Andre's body is under the steam hammer. Francois asks if he should come to her, but she demands that he call the police first. She hangs up. Francois calls the police. It's a hell of a call to get in the middle of the night. I think those first few paragraphs that we heard at the top offer also a key to this story that's easy to overlook. Yes, it's a mad scientist story, so it's a child of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It also has the animal-human hybrid angle of Dr. Moreau. But the device used to create this monster, that's the unique offering, I think. Mm. It's a transporter device, just like Star Trek. Yeah. This is a mistake in beaming somebody from one place to another. Mm -hmm. But with that device being invented in the story, you might ask, well, why isn't it then used? Why doesn't the story go to a place where we pull a heist or maybe we pull a political assassination or something using this device? Mm. Why does it turn out to be about a guy that has a fly head? (laughs) And, you know, I think the answer is in those crucial opening paragraphs about the telephone. Yeah. How they make the narrator uneasy telephones Mm -hmm. and how they've grown into every nook and cranny of the world so that none of us have a moment of privacy. And surely this resonates with a modern audience. Oh, yeah. The more the technology allows us to communicate in an impersonal way, the more we use it. The result is somehow that we have both less privacy and less human interaction socially. Mm-hmm. Does this ability, this advance in technology, actually dehumanize us in a way? Does it decivilize us? Commissaire Chirac drives by and questions Francois as he drives to the factory. We find out that André was doing work for the Ministère de l'Air, the French Air Force, but used part of Francois' factory for some of his experiments. Francois doesn't know much about his brother's work, just that it had something to do with the disintegration of matter. Wow. When they get to the factory, they find more police and two night watchmen at the hammer. Andre's head and right hand have been smashed under this huge hydraulic press. Francois is upset, but keeps it together. They want him to lift the press, and he notices that it's set to zero, which is not only unusual, it is never done. That means that there is no space between the two plates. This was not an industrial accident. Whoever did this wanted it to flatten whatever was in there. The police ask him to raise the press, and he does so. I also heard the sucking sound as it left the metal base, and I thought I was going to panic when I saw Andre's body heave forward as a sickly gush of blood poured all over the ghastly mess bared by the hammer. Francois mumbles to himself and throws up. (laughs) It's a hell of an opener. Follows in the footsteps of The Invisible Man or Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde by presenting the mad science first as a mystery for us to sort out. Mm. We see the after effects of it. And now we got to kind of backtrack. That is a very gory opening scene too. And to say that for 1958, you don't quite get the gushing, which might have been too much, but there is a very graphic murder scene in that film. It's in color too. In my head, I remembered it being in black and white, but it Mm. is... Full technicolor. That gets us into chapter two. Over the next few weeks, Commissaire Chirac and Francois become friendly during the investigation. Chirac admits that Francois was his prime suspect, but then he quickly dismissed that notion. He had no motive, and Helene admitted the whole thing. In the movie, Francois admits to Chirac that he's in love with Helene, but oh. that he cho- she chose his brother, the better man, quote-unquote, one. But he still kind of pines after her, and the, the commissaire picks up on that. The doctors claim that she's insane, so there's no trial, and she's institutionalized. Helene never denies anything, but is evasive about why she would kill her husband, just saying, I can't answer that. She's able to demonstrate that she knew how to work the press, and strangely, the press was operated twice that night counter to her story that she used it just once. So more elements to the mystery. Francois knows that she didn't know how to operate the press. So who showed her how to do it? Mm -hmm. And why did she bring it down twice? Furthermore, why did the husband apparently just lie down there and wait for it to happen? Yeah. A group of officials from the air ministry come down to the lab looking for his work 
it seems quite a bit of it is missing, seemingly destroyed. Helene and Andre have a child, Henri, and because of the situation, Francois is now the guardian. Helene is institutionalized, but she seems mostly sane. However, soon after her arrival, she does go a bit bonkers when a nurse tries to swat some flies. Yes, she doesn't want her to do it. Don't hit that fly. I could imagine a kind of odd couple situation where at this institution, she has to room with Renfield from Dracula. <laughs> so she wants to save the flies to see if they have little human heads, but he just keeps eating them. Sign me up. Commissaire Chirac comes to visit Francois after Helen's episode with the nurse. He suspects that there is more to this crime, but isn't sure what it is. But he doesn't think that Helene is insane. Chirac asks if Andre's work had anything to do with flies. Of course, Francois doesn't know, and he tells Chirac to ask the air ministry. And he says, I did. And they laughed at me. What a bunch of dicks. <laughs> that gets us into chapter three. One day at home, Henri asks Francois if flies live a long time. And this jolts Francois because it was just what the commissaire was asking about. Why do you ask? He says to Henri. Henri explains that he's looking for a strange fly he saw a while ago. It had a white head and a strange leg. He told his mother about it before his father went away and she told him to let it go. So he did. But soon afterwards, she asked Henri to try and find it again. Just in case you weren't sure what decade the story was written in, she changed her mind. And shrugging his shoulders, just like my brother used to, he added, you know what women are. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the kid says. And he says it in the movie, too. Oh. Like I said, this is a really direct adaptation. And uh, he's like, you know women. But this is after also, this is after Francois watered down some wine and handed it over to him, which is yeah. both in the story and the movie. And I know it's no big deal for the French, but yeah. it was just funny to see this kid. He drinks a glass of wine. He goes, ah. Good. And then he's casually chauvinist. And Vincent Price is delighted by both the wine drinking and the chauvinism. He loves it. Francois thinks about Andre. He was a kind man. He didn't like to hurt animals and he never hurt people. He was never absent minded. He was clever. He was funny. So, what happened between Helene and his brother? This prompts Francois to question Helene himself. He goes down to the asylum. She takes him into the garden there. And before he could really question her, Helene asks, how long can flies live? And hmm. Francois, he uses this as a chance to get to her. I don't really know, Helene, but the fly you were looking for was in my study this morning. And she freezes. He's hit on something. Mm -hmm. But Francois must be careful to get her to talk more. Helene asks if he killed it. And he says, no. She then thinks that he has it on him and she almost attacks him to try and get the fly, but Francois convinces her, no, I don't have it on me. Helene says that the fly must be destroyed. She promised Andre that she would. Francois tells her that the fly could be evidence. If they give it to the police, she could be free, but no, it's better for Henri, for her to be here than for her to be guillotined for murder. Francois doesn't understand what she's talking about because this doesn't make any yeah. sense, but continues his probing. Francois says that he must know what happened to his brother. He wants to protect Henri, but he doesn't understand from what. Finally, she agrees. In the movie, and I think in here as well, she's pretending that she doesn't even really recognize her kid because she thinks that that sort of alienation from her own child will support her being insane. Right. So she's playing it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. He needs to manipulate her a little bit here. He just appeals to her. Hey, come on. You just got to tell me what's up and then I'll destroy the fly. But in the movie, he straight up lies to her. He says, I have the fly in my possession and you better tell me what's up or I'm going to turn it over to the police and then oh. nobody's going to kill it. Right. Which I thought was actually a little bit of a stronger yeah. incentive for her to give up the goods. I agree. She has a confession that she wrote, but she hasn't given it to anyone. 
She goes to her room and brings it back down in a brown envelope. Listen, Francois, you are not nearly as bright as your poor brother, but you are not unintelligent. All I ask is that you read this alone. After that, you may do as you wish. (laughs) What was with the drive-by on him there? Well, clearly she's into the brains. I mean... (laughs) You know, as we're about to find out in this account, her husband was a typical mad scientist, disappearing for days on end in the lab, ignoring his family in the quest of some great project. And that's a type that some ladies just can't resist. I think that that's what was the difference between the Vincent Price character here and the fly scientist was that he was a lot, you know, she likes the brainy types. Sure, but she's unnecessarily cruel right there. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, she's kind of a complicated character, actually. Yes. You know, she has to do something pretty horrific here, and then she's just going to take the rap for it. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. In the movie, there's a little bit of tension with that character, because in one respect, she's a very cookie-cutter 1950s housewife type, but there's just more going on with her. Yeah. And, And she's got a great monologue midway through the movie. That's just about how technology is moving too fast for her. Mm-hmm. The scientist is going, well, you like TV and you like radio. And she's like, yeah, but Sputnik and supersonic travel and all this stuff, it's got to all slow down. I feel like we're losing ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's right there at the midpoint. You know that he was really trying to get that message across yeah. so it doesn't get lost in the monster movie stuff. Right. And I think that it, it's that attempt to get those opening paragraphs somewhere into the movie. That gets us into chapter four, which is mostly Helene's confession written from her point of view. This is not a confession, it says, because although I killed my husband, I'm not a murderess. I simply and very faithfully carried out his last wish by crushing his head and right arm under the steam hammer of his brother's factory. Helene explains that her husband was telling her about his experiments. He was working with a matter transmitter, a teleportation device. This device would destroy and rebuild a person at a new location. If it's invasive that somebody can text or call you at any moment, what if they could just show up? (laughs) You could write 90 horror stories with this device. The first evidence Helene saw is when Andre brought her an old ashtray that he had gotten on a trip in London. He explained that it had been transmitted. But she noted that on the bottom of the ashtray, the inscription made in Japan was printed backwards. Andre was devastated, but not deterred and went back to work. So it's able to transport things, but he didn't notice. It's not perfect. First of all, I'm questioning him as a scientist that he didn't notice Made in Japan was written backwards <laughs> on the thing. But it was a nice physical way to convey the danger mm. of the device and also to convey that he isn't thinking super clearly. The You know, his wife found that error immediately. Yeah. Here we see the fatal flaw of the mad scientist. Why is he not recruiting others to help him with this? Once he's got the basic technology worked out, is it that he wants all the credit or he doesn't want the world to know about it until it's perfect? He's a perfectionist and he doesn't want these errors to get out there. It's a little like the idea for the Odd Couple show I had back there. I could have just kept that to myself, (laughs) taken all the glory. Sure. But the more logical thing is to get it out there like I did so others can contribute, maybe write their own episodes, really refine the idea as I know people will. Very exciting. (laughs) A few days later, Andre confesses to Helene that he tried to transmit the cat, Dandelo. The cat disintegrated perfectly, but never appeared on the receiving end. So who knows what happened to those atoms? More cat abuse. Oh, man. This scene with Dandelo is actually in the movie, and he transmits the cat through the air, but it doesn't land in the other machine. And you just kind of hear it meowing around in the air. (laughs) He looks around and you hear like, you know what? I'm going to play just a clip just of that because it made me chuckle. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> How does that work? That doesn't make I any don't sense. Know. Over the next few weeks, Andre spends more time in his laboratory. Finally, he has a breakthrough. To celebrate, they take some champagne down to the lab. He's going to transmit it. Opening the door of a telephone call box he had bought and which had been transformed into what he called a transmitter. Having carefully closed the door, he took me to the other end of the room and handed me a pair of very dark sunglasses. He put on another pair and walked back to a switchboard by the transmitter. This all also happens in the movie, and it's a very cool atomic age laboratory. Lots of neon going on, reel-to-reel mm -hmm. machines, patch cables. The experiment works. The booze is teleported. They pop the <laughs> champagne and drink. But then Andre brings out a guinea pig and places it into the booth. Zap! It teleports! It's alive and well! Andre is excited but cautious, and he wants to take time and make sure the guinea pig is actually healthy and intact. Take the same precautions with his wife, fed teleported champagne. <laughs> like, why do that? She could be poisoned or grow cysts as a result. You don't know what's in there. Much simpler thing, some champagne, than a living organism. She <laughs> might drink that champagne, and then he'll be like, do you like it? And she belches, and a meow comes out because she got a little bit of the cat <laughs> in the boots. I'm just saying at this testing stage. That's true. Bring in some other scientists in order to prevent any meow belches. You're right. Because he wants to be cautious, he said he's going to wait a month, but he gets antsy and decides that he's going to teleport their dog. And he does it a half dozen times. Again, seemingly, the dog's fine. Andre gets more intense with his experiments and over the next few weeks begins to plan testing it on himself. Why do it? Transport himself from one place to another. That's yeah. dangerous. There's an argument in Star Trek. There was a novel called Spock Must Die that came mm -hmm. out a long time ago in the late 60s, early 70s. And they discussed the fact that a transporter actually kills you and then makes a duplicate out of your atoms. It's not you. You die. Right. It's a copy of you because there's no continuity of thought. You're not like, I'm thinking, It's a, you're dead, and then they bring back something that looks like you. And because it's a perfect replica, it would have... All, all your memory, sure. Yeah. And to everybody else, it'll seem just like you, but to you, you end. And then this other dude takes over, or woman, or whoever gets transported. Now, they changed that later in TNG because they show that you are conscious as you're transported. So you're still, you remain like in the stream. Oh, really? You're still awake. Yeah. Well, so that the, explains the meowing in the air then. Why you were go. you surprised by that? <laughs> it's using the same technology, the ghost technology. Okay. Well, there you go. That makes sense. Well, there's that saying that every seven years, all your cells have been replaced, and so you're not even the same person. I'm sure that's a simplification right. of what actually happens. But there is some truth yeah. to it. You have cell reproduction. I wonder, if is that like rent control, where as long as there's, you know, it's being passed, <laughs> as long as it doesn't all happen at once. Yeah, well, there's the, I, I think what they talk about in, you know, transhumanism and these types of things is the continuation of consciousness, that you're you're still thinking, so you still exist. And even though your body changes, you're becoming a, you're moving into a different form, your old cells die, you're still, even when you sleep, you're st there's still activity right. in your brain. Things are still going on. Mm -hmm. But with this, your brain activity stops. Your brain is gone yeah. and then re put back together. So I don't even know why anybody would want to do this. It's a little more like the prestige or something like that. The old version of you dies and then the new one continues on. Ooh. I just spoiled that movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. <laughs> it's like 20 years old. Yeah, you're right. Moving on. Let, let's keep going with the fly. One day, Helene gets a note from Andre saying, don't disturb me. Then soon after, Henri tells his mom that he caught a fly with a funny white head and she tells <gasps> him, let it go. And he does. 
I was yelling at the story, don't let that fly go, you fools. <laughs> Later that day, when she comes down to the lab, she finds a typed note on the door, not a handwritten one like normal. It tells Helene to come back later after putting Henri to bed, and she does, only to find another note. There has been an accident. He doesn't want to go into specifics, but he's trying to fix it and to leave him alone to do his work. Also, bring me a bowl of milk with rum in it. <laughs> That's not odd. Not odd at all. She returns to find another note. Instructions. When you knock, I'll open the door. Bzzz. You are to walk over to my desk and put... No, there's no buzzing in there. You are to walk over to my desk and put down the bowl of milk. You will then go into the other room where the receiver is. Look carefully and try to find a fly which ought to be there, but which I am unable to find. Unfortunately, I cannot see small things very easily. Before you come in, you must promise me to obey me implicitly. Do not look at me and remember that talking is quite useless. I cannot answer. Knock again three times. And that will mean I have your promise. My life depends entirely on the help you can give me. Obviously, Helene is freaking out. Why is he being so dodgy about all this? But she loves her husband and she follows his wishes. My wife loves me, but she would never follow those <laughs> wishes. That blanket over my head would be coming off second two. So the lab is a disaster area, and she remembers hearing a strange gurgling and sucking as though he had trouble in drinking his milk. Ugh, that's the worst part of both the 50s and 80s movies is the eating. Oh, yeah. She looks for the fly, but she can't find it. She understands that he can't talk and asks him to knock once for yes, twice for no. She goes to him and sees that Andre has covered his head with a cloth. Later, she remembers telling him about how Henri found a white-headed fly, was that what you were looking for? Andre emitted a strange metallic sigh, and I just had time to bite my fingers fiercely in order not to scream. He had let his right arm drop, and instead of his long-fingered muscular hand, a gray stick with little buds on it like the branch of a tree hung out of his sleeve almost down to his knee. Dun, dun, dun. She begs him to let her help, and finally he capitulates, but makes her leave while he types. He slides a note under the door saying he needs time to write, and we'll have an explanation for her in the morning. How could you just go to bed, though? No way, dude. Yeah. No way! <laughs> All right, I'll just lay down for a while. But in the morning, she goes down to find out what happened. There's a note in the lab for her. Do you remember the ashtray experiment? I have had a similar accident. I transmitted myself successfully the night before last. During a second experiment yesterday, a fly, which I did not see must have got into the disintegrator. My only hope is to find that fly and go through again with it. Please search for it carefully, since if it is not found, I shall have to find a way of putting an end to all this. I mean, once you've got all the atoms screwed up, it can't be that easy to fix it, like hitting yourself on the head again to reverse amnesia. <laughs> I feel like if he went in with the fly, he'd just keep making more weird combinations of the two of them. The specifics of how this works. So maybe there was some programming. I mean, this is all analog, so it's crazy to think that they could even come up with a way of doing this. Right. But maybe there is some way that if he modified it, he could separate the two things. I guess if you're using ghost technology, too. <laughs> exactly. She begs him to let her see him, and she understands he must be disfigured, but it doesn't matter to her. She loves him. Still, he says no. So she goes off again to try and find that missing fly. Of course, no fly is found that day. She enlists Henri to help her try and find the fly. Goes a little nuts on the kid. <laughs> says here, I shook him and slapped him and made him cry in front of the round-eyed maids. Realizing that I must not let myself go, I kissed and petted the poor boy and at last made him understand what I wanted of him. 
she freaking hits him and then goes, oh, whoops, I can't do that in front of the help. Let me be nice to him. Give a little kiss and pat on the head. It's a desperate situation. It is. I treat, your husband's a half fly now, so yeah, I could see making judgment errors. Later that day, Andre and Helene have a discussion of sorts about what to do. He still won't let her see him, so they communicate with her talking to him and him knocking and typing when need be. Still, she can't see him. He is intent on suicide. He doesn't want this technology getting into the general population. It's just too dangerous. Whatever. He's too dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, he was sloppy. And if you took precautions, then everything right. would be all right. He it's pitched it by saying we won't have famine anymore. We can get food from one place to another with no problem. But then he didn't do any of that. He turned himself, you know, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to send my cat, my dog, a guinea pig and myself through this first. <laughs> Come on. It's true. She doesn't want to give up hope, but he's not quite himself, not just physically. I am alive, all right, but I am already no longer a man. As to my brain or intelligence, it may disappear at any moment. As it is, it is no longer intact, and there can be no soul without intelligence, and you know that. Intelligence is the whole thing she likes about him. <laughs> Helene suggests that he goes back through again. Maybe the machine will sort him out. And he says, look, I've already done this seven times. It didn't work. She begs him to try again, so he does, but nothing. She tries to touch him while he's got this cloth over his head, but he recoils and stumbles. The cloth falls and she sees him. Slowly, the monster, the thing that had been my husband, covered its head, got up, and groped its way to the door and passed it. Though still screaming, I was able to close my eyes. I, who had ever been a true Catholic, who believed in God and another better life hereafter, have today but one hope, that when I die, I really die, and that there may be no afterlife of any sort, because if there is, then I shall never forget. Day and night, awake or asleep, I see it, and I know that I am condemned to see it forever, even perhaps into oblivion. Until I am totally extinct, nothing can, nothing will ever make me forget that dreadful white hairy head with its low, flat skull and its two pointed ears, pink and moist. The nose was also that of a cat, a huge cat. But the eyes... Or rather, where the eyes should have been were two brown bumps the size of saucers. Instead of a mouth, animal or human, was a long, hairy, vertical slit from which hung a black, quivering trunk that widened at the end, trumpet-like, and from which saliva kept dripping. I must have fainted because I found myself flat on my stomach on the cold cement floor of the laboratory, staring at the closed door behind which I could hear the noise of Andre's typewriter. Cat? Mm. What's the cat stuff? The cat got mixed up with him because it had been transported but never made it to the receiver, so it's just floating around out there, and somehow the cat and the fly got mixed up with him. The story uses it so that he's even more of a Lovecraftian monstrosity. Part fly, part cat, part man. Wow. But obviously in the film, they didn't want to do that because it dilute. I mean, the movie's called The Fly. Yeah. The, this reveal in the movie is very much like Phantom of the Opera from a couple of decades before. Mm. It's a big reveal. The mask is pretty cool. I remembered yeah. it being much larger, 
But obviously I'm thinking about the fly too, or Return of the Fly, mm. rather, where it is a big black mantle looking head. Because in the original one, the, it's a kind of a human sized head, but it's this shocking. It looks a little more like Greedo from Star Wars or like yeah. the black man with a horn might look because it's got the weird proboscis coming out of it. Right, right, right. When she comes to, she hears him typing and he explains. That last experiment was a new disaster, my poor Helene. When I went into the disintegrator just now, my head was only that of a fly. I now only have its eyes and mouth left. The rest has been replaced by parts of the cat's head. You see now that there can only be one possible solution, don't you? I must disappear. Knock on the door when you are ready and I shall explain what you have to do. And that was that. Afterwards, she agreed to everything. Together, they went to the factory. He showed her how to work the press. He knelt down, carefully wrapped the carpet round his head, and then stretched out flat on the ground. It was not difficult. It was not killing my husband. Andre, poor Andre, had gone long ago, years ago, it seemed. I was merely carrying out his last wish and mine. You know, if he's not intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) She realized after the fact that he only put his head under... So she had to lift up the press again and stick his arm under and then press it down a second time. And so that's her story. That's why the stroke count is two. That's why she did it twice. It wasn't cruelty. It was because the job wasn't finished. It's not in the story, but in the movie, they did make some hay out of this. When she comes over to do that, he grabs her. Oh, my God. Because he's starting to descend into that fly intelligence. And not, like I say, it's hinted at, but not a lot is made of this in this story or that 50s one. It's made a lot more of in the 80s one, that kind of dehumanizing thing that happens. Right. The scary thing that he's getting the fly brain instead of the human brain. But that scene where he almost pulls her into the press was so reminiscent of Terminator that I am oh, sure right. James Cameron yeah. was thinking about this in that scene oh, when it man. happens with the robot there. Because what a horrible thing to have somebody drag you into this press. That gets us into chapter five, the final chapter. Francois invites the commissaire over for dinner. We learn that Helene committed suicide. Oh, man. Francois tells Shirah that he wants to show him something. It's the confession. After Shirah finishes reading the confession, he puts it back in the envelope and then throws it into the fire. I think it proves very definitely that Madame de Lambre was quite insane. For a long while, we watched the fire eating up Helene's confession. Funny thing happened to me this morning, Shara. I went to the cemetery where my brother is buried. It was quite empty, and I was alone. Not quite, Monsieur de Lombre. I was there, but <laughs> I did not want to disturb you. Then you saw me. Yes, I saw you bury a matchbox. Do you know what was in it? A fly, I suppose? Yes. I had found it early this morning, caught in a spider's web in the garden. Was it dead? No, not quite. I crushed it between two stones. Its head was white. All white. Ooh, 
And that is the end of the story. A little bit more of a sad ending yeah. with the suicide of Helene. In the film, she's about to go to jail. Oh, really? Even though the policeman has heard this story because there's no confession written down. She explains it to mm-hmm. Vincent Price and the cop. Right. Meanwhile, that fly is caught down in the web, down in the garden. And that is probably one of the more memorable moments oh of the my movie. God, yeah. Is the help me! That's one of the freakiest things I think I've ever seen in a movie. There's a little bit of flange effect on the voice. Yeah. What was it about it that disturbed you? Everything. The fact that the dude was like a fly and he was trapped and he was going to be eaten by a spider. And they show the spider coming down and you can see part of his human body on the fly freaking out. It's just a horrific moment. And then the way that they deal with it is... They just kill him. Yes. They just smash it with a rock. So the little boy says, hey, that fly is down right as they're about to cart her off to jail. The little boy says that fly is is still down there. It's in the garden and it's been in the web. So Vincent Price takes the policeman down there. They witness this happening. The policeman kills both the spider and the fly. And that's the end. But because he has seen that this is actually true, they decide to change what happened into it being an industrial accident. And she doesn't have to go to jail. And I found it interesting that at the end, so now the husband's gone and she's with the kid and it's just Vincent Price there to become the patron of the family. Uh, And remember they introduced early on that, you know, he was in love with her. her. And so it's Uh like almost this was a very elaborate cover story or an elaborate con. You know, they used a special effect to put that (laughs) that fly in the web because they killed him to get him out of the way so they could have their relationship. Wow. Remember, everything is told in flashback. We don't really get firsthand uh, evidence of any of this stuff. So I don't know. know. Movie ending is a little bit different, but mostly similar and and has that very chilling help me fly in the web at the end. It's great. It's great stuff. The rest of this month, we're going to be doing horror stories. Uh, We haven't decided on what the next story is yet, but it'll be in our show notes. So check that out. I want to thank Andrew Lehman for being our reader. Oh my God. Andrew really brings the thunder. As always, please go out to the HP Lovecraft Historical Society's website, CthulhuLives.org and check out all that they offer. There's so much joy, so many wonderful things. You're going to be spoiled for entertainment. It's great stuff. I would like to thank our stakers who make these free shows possible. And remember, folks, if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Patreon. You get six shows a month on all the best genre fiction. You're going to love that. I want to thank our stakers, though, for making these free shows possible. And I'm going to start by thanking the king of all the snakes. I'd like to thank Crypto Cryptographer. I'd like to thank Alistair Brooks. The twins. Thank you, guys. Boss Coffee, thank you so much. Angelina Brown, thank you. Eric Valone, MD, thank you. Richard Wolf, thank you. And finally, Ben A., thank you so much. We're going to be back with more horror stories. Welcome to Halloween season. I just want to mention that we now have a Discord server up and running. There's a lot of activity within like a couple of days. People have been going nuts over there. So if you're into Discord, go to our Patreon site. That's all we have for this show. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. On StrangeStudies.com and Patreon. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!